You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, We're not a group of good people who are trying to get slightly better. We're a group of sinners in desperate need of the grace and mercy of God. And those of us who've gotten to know Jesus would say, man, I've I've been forgiven some really rough things in my story, and more and more I'm realizing that that God's kind of restoring his image in me. And those of us who don't know Jesus are still trying to figure it out. And to be honest, on any given moment, I, I think I'm still figuring it out a little bit too. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more I find that my life makes a little bit more sense. We're talking about how to wreck your life. That's the series we've been in. And today we're going to talk about how to wreck your life uh, by making it all about being a good person, which is really counterintuitive. I mean, that's what the church is here for, right? To make people into good people. Like, that would be, that's why I came. That's why most people come. Um, Isn't that what the church is all about? And the truth is, that's not what the church is all about. And that's not what Jesus is all about. Jesus came uh, not to make good people better and not to make bad people better. Jesus came to raise the dead. And you might be here and you might be thinking, well, like, okay, that's fine, but like, I still, I, like, that might be nice for you. I just want to listen to some of those teachings and become like a better person. And we would say that's a good idea and that's a noble goal and that's a great thing in many ways, uh, but you'll probably fail. And the reason we say you'll probably fail uh, is the same reason I would never accuse a corpse of laziness. Uh, the problem is not work ethic. there's a deeper problem in that story. And so uh, we're going to talk more about this today. If you would turn with me in a Bible to Luke chapter 15, we're going to read a really old and familiar story to some of you. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be at verse 11 in a phone or in a book. And that we're continuing in a series called How to Wreck Your Life. All right. Luke 15, 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property on dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it 
eat and celebrate. <laughs> For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Hmm. He called to one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come back, and your father has got, killed the fatted calf because it has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. Hmm. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus. This story is precious to me because it's my story. And I pray, Lord, that we might hear you, the good, good Father, calling out to us to come home. That if we're lost today, God, that we would come home, that you would speak to us, that you would wrap us in your arms, and that we'd come to know you. In the name of Jesus, this drives me nuts. Sorry, <clears throat> there's nothing I can do about it. It never happens, and all of a sudden I'm reading the Bible to you, and I go, oh my gosh, this is true, and it hits me every time. It's unbelievable. <sighs> this is often called the story of the prodigal son in English. In other languages, it's called the story of the two sons. There are two sons in this story. And you can practically hear the elder brother saying, what about me? You have two sons. What about me? And so we're going to spend some time on this neglected elder brother today. Somebody the church doesn't often pay attention to, and it should. Rembrandt painted this painting a long time ago. It's one that you've probably seen before. Some of you studied in school, and if you're art history folks, you may have a much better explanation of it than I do. But I can tell you that the light and darkness in the painting is intentional. And to help us to see what we should see. Uh, the father, in the center of the painting, really draws your eye. He stoops to embrace his son. And his son is wretched. In tattered clothes and shoes, disfigured and emaciated, he is unrecognizable as the son of the father. But off to the side, there's this man who looks so much like the father. He's wearing the same color clothes and the same style. His beard is similar, but less gray. He's younger. His face looks not compassionate and not particularly joyful, but he's definitely watching from a distance. He's not quite in the darkness, and he's not quite in the light. 
And there's literally a step between him and the light, a step between him and the Father. And he stands tall and proud. He doesn't stoop. He doesn't seem that interested in closing the gap. He's so close, but so far. He looks so much like him and so unlike him. It's a remarkable painting of a remarkable story. And the distance and the difference between the father and the elder brother is what we're going to talk about today. Because you and I, we have a father in heaven. Thanks. And we want to be like him and we want to be close to him. We don't want to just superficially look like him. We want to actually be like him. And so we're going to talk about the difference and the distance between the Father and the Son. In verse 25, it says this, Now the elder son was in the field, and when he heard, when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he gets close to the house, and he hears music and dancing. What kind of a party does it have to be that you hear the dancing? Not just the music, you hear the dancing. Now that is a party. Right? Especially if there is music, it's not quiet, and you can hear dancing, this is, this is popping. Like, this is, something is going really crazy in this house, and he's getting closer and just hears this massive celebration going on. And then in verse 28, we hear that he's offended. And in verse 29, the, he and the father are talking, and he's telling the father just why he's so angry. He's angry because there's a celebration for this person who has wronged him. Now, there's an old saying in the AA community, Alcoholics Anonymous. The, the only thing better than being right is feeling wronged. The only thing better than being right is feeling wronged. And what they mean by that, these people who are just skilled and experienced in telling the truth about themselves, really aware of their own flaws and failures, is there are some people in their community who are still living a story where it's somebody else's fault that I'm drinking. It's somebody else's fault. It's because of these things that I've got these problems. And as long as you remain a victim, you will feel almost better than feeling right. They also know that there are people outside the community they're trying to engage on a regular basis and make amends to. And there are people they've genuinely wounded. And those people, when faced with somebody who really wants to apologize, would rather be a victim. Because there's this one thing that they've got, that you hurt me. And they cling to it really tightly, that I'm offended, that this is wrong something really great about feeling wronged. It gives you a strange sense of power, being a victim. It's one of the things that we see actually in the Middle East. So in the nation of Israel, there are two tribes, Palestinian and Israeli. And each one of them will tell you how they've been wronged, a long list, and why that means they can do whatever they want to anyone they want to do it to. And you may sympathize with one side or the other. But in the church, our job is to pray for Palestinians and pray for Israelis, to pray for peace. We want people to come to know Jesus. We want the kingdom to come. But it's hard to look at folks who just would rather be wrong than be right. This is something we learn, I think, as adults when we're trying to figure out relationships, especially as we're trying to follow Jesus and, and go, well, it, I've, I've kind of been hurt by these folks. I've been hurt by this community or been kind of wounded by society, and I, I feel like a victim, and I could cling to that. I could hang on to that. And that gives me a certain sense of power, but it also guarantees I will always be a victim. That power comes at a price. It's a painful one. And likewise, there are plenty of folks in marriages, and when you're a pastor, you hang out in an awful lot of marriages, who would rather feel wronged than have things be set right. 
because she did these things, because he did this. We just cling to it. There's something about being wrong that makes you feel right, whether or not you actually are. It, it gives you a sense of power. The older brother is in the field working when his younger brother comes back. I've been abandoned by you. I've been taking care of dad. I'm the responsible one. I'll do this. I'm, I'm not going to you know, bail like you bailed. I'm not going to waste his money like you did. I'm not going to live that life of just ridiculous sexual sin and other stuff that you've got going on. I don't want to be a part of that. And, and now that you're back, man, that makes me feel good. Now that you failed, ooh, that feels really good. The problem he has isn't that the younger brother's back. It's that they're throwing a party. That's the problem. The problem is that we're celebrating that he's back. It's great that he's back. Let's let him live like a slave. It's great that he's back. Let's let him really feel that failure for a long time. We're throwing a party for him. When you play baseball and you come out of the dugout, there's two ways when you're at bat to come home. One is you hit a home run. People are thrilled. And they're clapping and they're cheering and they're hugging you and you're rounding the bases like a champion. The other way is to strike out or get thrown out, to fail. Nobody throws a party when that happens. Why are we throwing a party when somebody struck out? Why are we throwing a party when somebody failed? There are many pastors and scholars throughout the centuries who think that it's possible the father and the son were in the field together when the younger brother comes home. In other words, they both see him come back, and one of them runs to wrap his arms around him, and the other keeps doing what he's doing. He's not that excited. Welcome back, I guess. But the father welcomes him in and treats him like royalty, and this burns the older brother. Because you know what would be better is if somebody threw a party for me. Now that he's back, right, you kill the fatted calf for him, you should kill the fatted calf for me. That's kind of the implication of verse 30. We should throw a party for how great I am. You should validate me and the choices that I made. I stuck with you. I stuck by you. I've been loyal. I've done the right thing. I've done the good thing. I am better than him. Why aren't you telling everybody else? There's a difference between being good and being better. And this is one of the challenges in making your life all about being a good person. Most of the time, we settle for being better than other people. The older brother is constantly comparing himself to the younger brother, and he does really well in that comparison. You and I, when we read the story, we compare him to the father immediately. The outside observer compares him to something else. He's comparing himself to the younger brother, and by every measurement, he wins. Every single measurement, he wins. A lot of the time in our lives, when it comes to whether or not we're a good person, if someone to say, are you a good person, almost instinctively, we start to say, well, I'm better than, I mean, it's not like I'm a child molester. It's not like I'm a murderer. I haven't killed anybody. We start lumping ourselves in with felons, and we look great in that company, as though we believe that the moral arc of the universe grades on a curve, right, that God is, you know, just sort of evaluating people, and as long as I sort of stack the deck with the wrong kind of people, I'm going to look great. It's easy if I lower the bar. I almost never compare myself to the Mother Teresas and the Dr. Martin Luther Kings and the Greta Thornburgs, and the list goes on and on and on and on. People who are unusually dedicated. Those people are like unusual. Like the rest of us, though, like I'm better than the average in these situations. Now, there's a TV show. It's surprisingly interesting. Uh, it's a rare moment. Uh, weirdly intellectual, The Good Place. Some of you watched it. It's really boring for the first three episodes. And I'm not necessarily recommending it to you, right? Theologically, I wouldn't say that it's solid. 
But it's a fascinating TV show, and they're constantly asking the question, well, how does somebody end up in the good place, and how does somebody end up in the bad place, and what's the point system like? Like, there must be a point system, and I must be doing better than some and, and worse than others, and how do certain things count against me, and they have a surprising kind of rubric. Well, it's, you know, if, if you name drop in a conversation, you go down a couple of points, but if you, you know, took out the trash without being asked, then you go up a couple of points. And we tend to evaluate our lives like that. And any idea that maybe we wouldn't end up in the good place, well, then we start saying, well, you know, who's, who's made this scale? Like, who am I being compared to? How is that maybe the point system is off? And that's the challenge, right, with trying to be a good person. You end up comparing yourself to other people. And the more you compare yourselves to other people, the worse of a person you tend to become. It becomes kind of this oddly vicious cycle. We do a little bit better, and we say, look how much better I am than you. And that, well, that makes us seem oddly insecure and problematic in a variety of ways. And it starts to look like maybe we're not being good people to be good people, but just because we want to be better than somebody else. Henry Nouwen talks about this struggle in a book he wrote on the prodigal son. Spent a lot of time looking at that painting. He says, it's strange to say this, but deep in my heart, I have known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son. I call their behavior reprehensible or even immoral, but at the same time, I wonder why I didn't have the nerve to do some of it or all of it myself. All of this became very real for me when a friend who had recently become a Christian criticized me for not being very prayerful. His criticism made me very angry. I said to myself, how dare he teach me a lesson about prayer? For years, he's lived a carefree, undisciplined life, and I, since a child, have scrupulously lived the life of faith. Now he's converted, he starts telling me how to behave. This inner resentment reveals to me my lostness. I had stayed home and didn't wander off, but I'd not yet lived a free life in my father's house. My anger and envy showed me my own bondage. There's a difference between being good and being better than. I would imagine if you started thinking about it, you can think of coworkers that you're better than, and you probably should have gotten a raise or a promotion. Friends and neighbors that you're better than, and you should be treated with more respect. Family members, brothers or sisters. This parable can hit really close to home if you just think about it literally. If you have a younger or an older brother who's kind of the screw-up, or you kind of the screw-up, hard. It's a difference between being good and being better than. And the older brother's case with the father is, I have always served you, verse 28. I've, every command you've ever given me, I've never disobeyed it. I've been like a slave for you. And you've never given me anything. And for him, for him you throw a party? For the, for the screw-up, I'm hitting home runs, and you're celebrating the guy who struck out? What's going on? There's a difference between being right and being righteous. There's a difference between being right and being righteous. The older brother is right. It's really important. He is absolutely right. It is good to honor your father and mother. It is good to not shame your family. It is good to do all of the good things and live the right way. It is good to live a good life. We are not saying you should not try to be a good person. It is good to be a good person. We are thrilled with good people. And in the church, we have lots of conversations about what it looks like to live a life of discipline and why. But that's the really important question. Why? The difference between being right and being righteous? Motivation. A lot of us are trying to be right for a very different reason. I've been like a slave for you, he says, and you've never given me even a young goat to call my own. Uh, 
you can see the kind of the cultural distance between us and this text. I don't know why a young goat would be exciting. Uh, you, likewise, in a party have not thought, man, if only we had more young goats lying around. There's, there's a distance between us and the Bible, but we understand the concept of, well, he seems to be serving the Father, not just because it's good to serve his Father, not just because he's trying to be a good person, but because he's trying to get something in return. Have you ever hung out with somebody who is more patriotic than you? Have you ever talked to somebody who's more political than you, and it sort of makes you a bad person that you're not more political, not more engaged? Uh, ever hung out with somebody who's further along in family than you, or maybe just better at money than you? So what starts out as a conversation about your vacation or your kids turns rapidly into a conversation about why you really need to be doing the sorts of things that I'm doing, and then it becomes a lecture on why you're wrong. Have you ever hung out with somebody who's more woke than you? <laughs> it becomes like the woke Olympics. All of a sudden, we're trying to just sort of out-woke out one another. And, and what initially is just a conversation about society and maybe that things need to change and maybe there's some unjust structures or maybe that, that someone's been oppressed, somewhere along the way it becomes a lecture on how you need to be more enlightened and that your language is bad and that ultimately you're oppressing other people. Have you ever hung out with somebody who's more of a Christian than you? Maybe because they only listen to Christian radio and because when they hear somebody swear, they kind of give them a look. And they, they read all the right books and they, they're engaged in all the right podcasts. And they're just really faithful and they're prayerful and they just really trust the Lord all the time. And whenever you've got a problem, they've got a solution for you. Or have you ever hung out with somebody who's the opposite but still a better Christian than you? Because they've been deconstructing more and they've read better books and they're not naive like you are and they've gotten a little bit further along. And they just have so much to teach you about how backward you are. There's a difference between being right and being righteous. That feeling you get in a conversation like that, it's hard to kind of name what's so annoying about them. Uh, the word is self-righteousness. It's a theological thing. Self-righteousness. And the reason you're so annoyed is they're trying to win. And they're trying to win against you, but they're trying to win something else. They're trying to justify their lives, justify a reason for their existence. Self-righteousness, that's what it's about. It's not about actually being righteous. It's about being right and what that gives me and what that proves about who I am against other people. And the challenge is, when you're in a conversation like that, what almost immediately starts to happen in most of us is, who are you to be telling me? I know more about this than you. Gosh, I can't believe how arrogant you are. You know what? I could teach you a thing or two. Maybe that happens inside. Maybe you suddenly erupt and unleash on them. Happens on Facebook, the unleashing more than anywhere else. Self-righteousness. It's contagious. This is the problem. There's a real difference between being right and being righteous. The older brother is serving the father, apparently because he's hoping to get something out of it. The younger brother leaves, the older brother stays, but they both seem to be similarly lost. It's just that the older brother's lostness is harder to see. Henry Nowen, again, says this, the, of the, the lostness of the elder son, however, is much harder to identify. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hardworking. People respected him, admired him, praised him. Considered a model son, especially when the older brother has the younger brother there for comparison. The lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach precisely because it is so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. There is a kind of sin that is only possible for good people, religious or non-religious. A kind of sin that is only possible if you're a good person. Self-righteousness. Failures, dropouts, flawed people, they know that they're not good people. The good people, though, ooh, 
this kind of sin that's only possible for those of us who think we might be good people, and it is extraordinarily contagious. Tim Keller talks about the older brother um, in all sorts of places, in his sermons and his writings, and he'll say things like, you know, the thing about the older brother, when you can, you can sense the older brother spirit in somebody, uh, because when things go really well in their life, they act like they've deserved it, or they feel deep down like, yeah, of course, like this, is, this belongs to me, like I've earned this somewhere along the way, and the instant suffering comes, the instant something bad happens, all of a sudden it's how dare you, how dare you, I deserve better than this. I have earned more than this. There's this sudden anger and resentment that happens in the midst of crisis and suffering. They don't know how to handle it theologically. There's a difference between being right and being righteous. The Old Testament spends lots and lots of time on the difference. And a lot of people, when they read the Old Testament, they get confused by this. And even the New Testament spends a lot of time on the difference. Yes, you should be a good person. Yes, there are good things to do. Yes, there's a moral code. Check all these boxes. But if you think that God's just about checking boxes, you've badly missed the point. You've badly missed the point. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he says in the Old and the New Testament. I'm not that interested in you checking all these boxes. You're missing something crucial. The older son is missing something crucial. I've served you like a slave all my life, he says. And you've never given me anything. And for him, you celebrate. And the father breaks in and says, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. You're my son, not my slave. You've missed something crucial. You think you're doing this to earn something that I've already given you, that's already yours. And the more you try to earn it, the farther you get from my house. The farther you get from my house. The strange thing about the church, a lot of the time, younger brothers come in and they meet Jesus and we become older brothers. Happens all the time, and you've met them, and maybe you've become one. Older brothers in the church occasionally realize our lostness and find ourselves on our knees begging the Father, who reacts exactly the same way every time, welcoming us in. Son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. There's a difference between being right and being righteous. There's a difference between being a slave and being a son or really, a slave and a child. Some of us aren't sons. You and I are called children of the Father. That's why Jesus comes, to bring us into his house. Men and women welcomed in to God's house. The prodigal son comes in. The older brother stays outside. He is unwilling to come home because he can't tell the difference between being a slave and being a son, being a slave and being a child. There's a, an old story that Elizabeth Elliot tells. It's apocryphal, so it's not a real story about Jesus. It's not in the Bible. She says, a long time ago, Jesus, he was uh, walking along with his disciples, and he says, we're going to go up that mountain. Why doesn't everybody grab a rock? It's a weird Jesus thing. So Peter, you know, it's a little rock, pebble, puts it in there. They go up the mountain, and they get to the top, and Jesus prays and turns all of the stones into bread. And Peter doesn't have enough food, and he's looking around, he's hoping to share. And then, you know, they're done with the meal, and they've been chatting. And Jesus says, okay, we're going to go down the mountain. Everybody grab a rock. Peter goes, cool. He picks up a giant boulder, and he puts it on his back. Brutal. Just miserable, sore, painful. He's sweating. Horrible time walking down the mountain, but he can't wait for dinner. Mm. And they get to the bottom, and they get near the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, throw the rock in the lake. And everybody looks at him, and Peter's just heartbroken. And Jesus stops and says, who are you carrying the rock for? 
you or me? Why are we serving? For us or for him? Deep, baked into the idea of following Jesus. A fundamental thing about Christianity is this. That we are dearly and deeply loved by God. Already. That there is no earning the love of God. There is no earning the gifts of God. Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. And inexplicably, people who are close to the Father sometimes forget this. This elder brother who is close to the Father somehow forgets that everything he has is a gift, that he serves because it's better to be close to the Father than not close to the Father. That's the difference between being a son and a slave. You're not trying to earn something. You've already been given something. You've been brought in to the house. He's missing something crucial. We cannot miss this really important thing in this story. Years ago, uh, 2004, the Olympics, Mark Emerson is in the rifle competition. Um, I'm not necessarily a gun person. I weirdly love the gun competitions in the Olympics. Skiing and shooting, incredible. It's, I don't know why that's not more of a game here in town. It's just an incredible sport. I would love to watch more of it. There's this rifle competition in 2004. Mark Emerson is the American. He's up. He's going to get a gold medal. He has dominated the competition. USA. We're very excited about it. And there's just one shot left, and basically he just has to hit the target. That's it. He doesn't have to hit the bullseye. He just has to touch the target at all, which seems extremely easy for someone who keeps hitting bullseyes. And so Mark slowly takes aim, and the crowd... Bullseye. Dead center. Incredible. People go nuts. USA. They go nuts. Mark is being hoisted on people's shoulders. He's victorious. He's triumphant. Everyone's so excited. But the judges keep whispering. And at first, it's not that noticeable. But little by little, if you're watching it, and you, I think you can go back probably on YouTube, the coverage shifts and starts to really focus on the judges because the judges haven't actually declared him a winner, and everyone knows he hit the bullseye. So it's confusing. And they keep whispering, and they keep whispering, and all of a sudden, someone awkwardly walks up from the judge's table and says, almost embarrassed by it, uh, Mark Emerson has been disqualified. He shot the wrong target. We cannot, cannot, cannot aim for the wrong target. If you spend your whole life trying to be a good person, there's a decent chance you won't become a good person. If you spend your whole life trying to get close to Jesus, you'll become better. I don't know if you'll become a good person, but you'll become more like Jesus. And I think it's worth becoming more like Jesus. Not just superficially, but internally. What, what good is it to hit the bullseye of the wrong target? Of what value is there in hitting the bullseye of the wrong target? The younger son has been brought into the house. The older son stands out of the house. And the father keeps pleading with him to come in. How do you not see that you're the lost one now? How do you not see that you're the lost one now? Come in. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Come in. Stop thinking you're better than your family members. You're better than somebody that you know. Come into the house. Stop trying to confuse the difference between right and righteousness. Stop aiming at the wrong target. Come into the house. Come into the love of the Father. Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. This brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive. 
Don't you become like him. He was lost, but now he's found. I'm out here trying to find you, says the father. Don't miss it. Come in. I just want to pull that um, picture up for you one more time. We're going to enter into a time of communion, but I just think it's worth looking at. Because I can tell you who God is in the story. And this story seems to set out two options for us. Jesus is telling this actually to a group of people. Earlier in Luke 15, we hear about it. It's full of tax collectors and sinners. Terrible, horrible people. Easy to look down on in society. And also some really religious people. Pastors, theologians, world leaders. All sorts of people are there listening, remarkable. And they're looking at these other people like, how is he hanging out with the wrong kind of people? Doesn't this make Jesus a bad person that he hangs out with bad people? And Jesus says, you've missed something crucial. You're aiming at the wrong target. You get to decide in this story that he tells which person you want to be, which child you want to be. Come back into the arms of the Father. Come back into the arms of the Father. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus.